regardless of the duration of creep feeding, 70% of the total creep feed consumption always occurs in the last seven days before weaning. And so what we did see is that creep feed consumption is much more related to when pigs are ready to eat creep feed rather than when we start them on creep feed. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry, one that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Just All, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in a high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Genesis, the first power in genetics. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Every pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. My name is Marcia Gonçalves, your host for today's episode. Hello, everyone. Today we have Dr. Romel Sulavo. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show, uh, Romel. Well, thank you, Marcia, for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. I remember uh, what, you know, look at your work there on crib feeding and uh that that was part of the reason why I also got fascinated with K State at the time, just you know practical work. So, I guess we can start, Doctor Romel, on just sharing your journey so far for for those that don't know you. Okay, so well, I'm from the Philippines, and uh, I grew up with a family that's in agriculture. My my dad is in animal science. My Mom is in agricultural education. My brothers are also in animal science. And so that kind of pulled me in. And I started my uh, journey uh, as an animal nutritionist when I took my undergraduate degree here at the, uh, the University of the Philippines, Los Banas. So here in, uh, in the university, we have a specialized program for animal nutrition. And uh, I chose poultry nutrition when I was an undergrad. And uh, my reason was very simple. You know, pigs are bigger, they're smellier, and uh, uh-huh. chickens were easier to handle. Yeah. Uh, but when I uh, graduated and uh, joined the, the industry, that's when I saw the light that uh, pigs are much more fun to, to, to work with. And uh, fortunately, I got the chance to work with uh, a multinational uh, feed company that's uh, uh, basically into swine integration. And uh, that basically started my uh, interest in swine nutrition. And so when I had the opportunity to uh, take some advanced uh, degrees, I got into South Dakota State University uh, with Bob Thaler and Mm -hmm. Hans Stein. So that was actually Dr. Stein's first stint uh, in his uh, teaching. Yeah. And I think I was one of his very first grad students. And, uh, and then I uh, came back here in the Philippines after I got that degree and uh, worked as a consultant. And then uh, 
Bob Toller again uh, invited me to go back and uh, he's an K-State alumni and uh, he kind of pulled me in and uh, that's when I got the chance to work with Mike Tokash and Bob Goodband and uh, uh, so I got my uh, PhD at Kansas State and worked for a year as a postdoc and then I got hired in uh, University of Illinois uh, with Dr. Stein working in his uh, monogastric nutrition lab. And so that kind of uh, helped me pull together two main things. Uh, I really wanted to work in applied nutrition. And so uh, with uh, my experience in uh, University of Illinois, I had opportunity to do a lot of work on feed ingredient evaluation. And then uh, my uh, experience in, uh, in Kansas State gave, gave me the chance to work, uh, to, to do a lot of applied work and see how uh, good applied research is done in the field. And that became my model. So when I returned here in the Philippines, uh, that's what basically I did. Uh, I kind of combined the two, the two things. And uh, now I'm uh, a professor here at the University of the Philippines, Los Banos. And uh, I also take, uh, I'm also the director of the Institute of Animal Science. And I get a chance to work with a lot of grad students as I mentioned uh, in our uh, initial talk, um, I have quite a big group that yeah. uh, is working with me right now. I think I have about 30 master's students and uh, close to 10 PhDs. Uh, that just shows you the interest in, uh, in animal nutrition in this part of the world. Wow. What a journey and, and what an amazing group you have there. Um, you certainly... You know, like Dr. Stein also have a big group, and uh, I think you 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 have more folks. It's amazing. Now, for yeah, folks yeah. that don't know the much about the industry, swine industry in the Philippines, can you just give a quick overview? Well, um, the animal industry in the Philippines is practically dominated by the swine industry. It's about eighty uh, percent of the livestock business here in the Philippines, and that is because. Uh, Filipinos are pork lovers. Uh, we love our pork. And so, uh, so I think that led to uh, a lot of developments in, in, in that industry. The only challenge now is we are also dealing with a lot of problems as, as what happens in many parts of Asia. Uh, we are dealing now uh, with uh, African swine fever. And uh, the sad part is that uh, uh, the, the, the virus basically hit the, the, the main part of the Philippines where most of swine production uh, happens. And, uh, and so that had kind, kind of dwindled uh, pig population uh, in the country. Normally, we would have about 13 million pigs, about 2 million sows. And uh, I think uh, we are probably closer to... Uh, half of that now because half of the pigs in the Philippines are in the Luzon Island. And so uh, the swine industry is dealing with a lot of challenges, but uh, Filipinos are very optimistic people and we always see challenges as opportunities. And so we are really excited to uh, rear back uh, into uh, uh, positive <laughs> business. Right. And and you mentioned, right, uh, I mean, Filipinos um, are one of the most uh, happy people that I've met, a great culture. It's just amazing. Um, I had the chance to spend a few days there or a full week, yeah. I guess, right? It was quite an quite experience. What a beautiful country and, and people. Um, yep. 
let's see uh, here, Romel, transitioning a little bit into the crib feeding work, right? It's certainly an area of discussion among a lot of uh, professionals. And um, I have my own opinion, but I, I want to know based on the data and your data, but I want to know what you think and also if you've done any further research after that or not, but what's your take today on the topic? Well, basically, my, my interest in creep feeding started with my interest in neonatal pig nutrition. I've always been interested with piglets. Uh, I think that's what reeled me in into swine, uh, swine nutrition. Um, they always say that uh, formulating diets for piglets is, uh, is more of an art than a science. And well, I guess I would disagree because, uh, yes, there might be some art in the design of the diets, but uh, all of those concepts are based, should be based on science. And uh, here in our part of the world, creep feeding is a normal practice. And that is because uh, most of our pig producers wean at older weaning ages. So usually we would wean at least four weeks of age. Uh, and there would even be producers that would, would be weaning at five weeks of age. Uh, but when I had a chance to uh, work at Kansas State, um, at that time, uh, pig producers were transitioning uh, from uh, early weaning to longer weaning ages. And when we say longer weaning ages, that's about 21 days. Right. So uh, there was, again, some uh, interest in the value of creep feeding. Well, when we look at creep feeding, in our case, we always think that it's a, it's, it's a way to improve weaning weights. And as we would always say, if you improve weaning weights, that would have uh, impacts on lifetime performance. There is also some uh, interest in creep feeding as a way of reducing pre-weaning mortality and then also post-weaning mortality. Uh, and so... So clearly there was some interest in, in the practice. And so that started uh, our, our, our thoughts on how, on how to evaluate creep feeding. If you look at the data, um, it's a practice that's done in many parts of the world. But what was interesting is that there is actually very limited data. Mm. And uh, that's just a perfect example of something that's being done that's, that's proper basically based more on, on practice rather than on science. Right. But with the little data that was available then, it was very clear that uh, the benefits of creep feeding was more equivocal, you know, the, the contrasting. There were some studies that shows that it, there is an effect uh, on weaning weights, while others show no effect. And I think that is mainly because of the very wide range in uh, creep feed consumption that you would see. Uh, and as we dig in deeper, uh, we then realize that even when you give, give creep feed freely to the litter, not all pigs eat creep feed. So we decided that if we will evaluate the practice, we have to look at it uh, individually, meaning looking at individual pre-feed consumption characteristics rather than looking at the entire litter. And so that's why that's what we did. So to evaluate the responses uh, on pre-feeding, we, we basically look, looked at uh, the effects on pigs that positively consume pre-feed, which we call eaters, and, uh, and then pigs that did not eat pre-feed, even though it was provided uh, 
um, in the farrowing pen, and we call them non-eaters. This episode's sponsor highlight is about Zinpro. Since 1971, Zinpro Corporation has focused on one thing, trace mineral nutrition. As the most research-proven organic feed trace mineral products in the industry, Zinpro Performance Minerals deliver performance and profitability to swine operations around the globe. To know more, go to zinpro.com. Very interesting. And I mean, that range is a big range, right? Depending on diet complexity and type of feeders, right? So can you comment a little bit on if you, if you, I guess let's put a few um, nuances uh, here or caveat, right? So if the winning age is longer, it would make a little more sense, right? If if labor is cheaper, it also would make a little more sense, right? Is that so? It, it's not one topic that would make sense in all scenarios. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. Well, what it was what was very clear is that the benefit of creep feeding uh, that what that what we've seen is not really more into improving weaning weights, but maybe changing the behavior of pigs, especially uh, post weaning, um, and that's what we've seen. Um, in all of the pre-feeding studies that we've done, uh, none of the studies showed an impact on weaning weights, but what we did see is effects on, on post-weaning performance, uh, particularly on pigs that ate pre-feed, the eaters. Um, well, the, the points that you were mentioning was, uh, um, you know, we looked at different uh, things, uh, different factors, both dietary and non-dietary factors that can influence uh, the proportion of eaters because that's what we observe. When pigs positively eat creep feed, when they are weaned, they consume more feed and that positively improves uh, growth rates. And uh, we've seen uh, some carryover effects until the end of the nursery. Now in our studies, we did not follow that through from from, uh, the end of the nursery uh, till uh, market uh, market weight, uh, but there were there are some studies that have been done. I think from Sarah Douglas, but uh, they, she did some work on on milk supplementation, and they did they, they, they did see some uh, some effects that carried over. But you will also find studies that uh, responses in the nursery, even though they are significant, are not carried over until the end. And mm-hmm. so I think that's that's something to probably evaluate further. Uh, so, so if the goal is to increase the proportion of eaters, uh, we looked at the different factors that can increase the number of eaters. Uh, because what we what we did see is a um, majority of the eaters uh, in the litter are actually the smaller pigs in the pen. So, which I think is intuitive, you know, because. Uh, uh, I guess that what that that would show that uh, in the litter, uh, since the big pigs gets the milk and they can compete better with smaller pigs uh, in the other, uh, then the smaller pigs are left uh, with uh, the supplement, and that would be the creep feed. And so the smaller pigs, uh, they when they consume creep feed, uh, when they are weaned, interestingly. Uh, they have shorter latency time. It takes them a shorter time to go to the feeder and eat the nursery feed. And uh, what we've also seen in our data 
is that uh, since their growth rates increase uh, immediately post winning, um, they kind of uh, catch up and uh, variation in the smaller pigs becomes uh, lower compared to uh, big pigs that uh, were totally dependent or mainly dependent on the uh, on the milk of the sow. And so uh, when they are weaned, they seem to have more difficulty in adjusting to post-weaning stress. So the objective then is uh, how do we increase the proportion of eaters? So that's why we looked at uh, uh, flavors. You know, so those are some things that we looked at in terms of the diet. Can in putting a flavor in the, uh, in the creep diet uh, and putting the same flavor in the nursery diet, would that help? Um, uh, and what we observed is that flavors did not improve uh, did not increase the proportion of eaters in the litter. Um, what we did see is that uh, the quality of the cree feed uh, is the most important factor in increasing the proportion of eaters. So we did a study where we compared a complex cree diet, and that would be more typical of the uh, market. You know, you would have uh, a lot of uh, specialty feed ingredients. Uh, you would have... Uh, high levels of lactose, um, you would have oat growths in the diet. So, so probably that would represent what you would see in the market. Uh, and then we compared that with a simple creep diet. And the simple creep diet that we used was basically the lactation diet. And that is because there are producers where um, there is some anecdotal data that says that uh, giving the lactation diet as a creep feed also works. And so, uh, if you would think about it, that makes it a lot simpler. You don't have to make uh, a very expensive diet. You would just have the same diet that you have in the uh, in the feeder of the sow, and uh, and uh, hopefully that would work. But unfortunately, but unfortunately, did it work? Uh, it was very clear that uh, the proportion of eaters were much less, about twenty percent, compared to when we feed the simple cream feed or the lactation diet compared to feeding uh, a complex diet where we achieve probably around 80% uh, eaters. And so, so that tells us that uh, cree feed quality uh, has a very big impact in stimulating pigs to eat cree feed. The other factor that I think was very interesting in our work was the impact of, of uh, feeders. Um, we had the opportunity to evaluate the different kinds of uh, uh, cree feeders, so from a simple pan feeder that uh, in theory, uh, if pigs would line up, that would give them a lot of space and access to the cree feed. Uh, then we also had uh, just a pan feeder and uh, which we would see in many farms. And then uh, we had another treatment where we had a hopper on the, on the rotary feeder. And in that study, what we did see is that the type of feeder uh, affects, uh, influences the proportion of eaters. We saw that uh, when we used the rotary feeder uh, with the hopper, we were able to create more eaters compared to uh, both the rotary feeder, the pan feeder, and the, pa uh, and the, and the, the line feeders. Uh, even though there is more access uh, to cree feed in those two uh, feeders. And what was interesting in that study was cree feed 
consumption in the pan feeder and the and the, the line feeder uh, was twice or almost three times greater than the the, the creep feed consumption in the uh, in pigs that were uh, provided creep feed in the uh, rotary feeder with the hopper. So what does that tell us? If the proportion of eaters is greater uh, with lower creep feed consumption, it just means that the the most of the pre-feed consumption in the, pan, uh, in the pan feeders were wasted pre-feed. And, uh, right. and as right. we all know, the pre-feed is a very expensive diet. So basically what, what we're just doing is just wasting all the feed away and, uh, uh, and that's like throwing away money. And just, so it clearly shows that, that, there may, that, the, that the type of feeder influences a uh, pre-feed consumption. So the next question there is why? So it may be possible that uh, the rotary feeder with the hopper allows or kind of stimulates the pigs to be more uh, playful and more uh, explorative. I don't know if that's the right word. Uh, and, uh, and so that allowed the pigs to really eat Creep uh, feed more effectively than uh, feeds uh, feeders that allowed uh, greater access. The other thing that we also evaluated is uh, duration of creep feeding. I think that is one of uh, uh, the bigger questions, uh, especially uh, in industry, because when you look at the recommendations of uh, many feed companies you will see a wide range of uh, uh, recommendations from feeding as early as day, uh, the third day of lactation uh, to as short as three days before weaning. So quite a big range. Uh, and if you would look again at, at, at the data, there's practically very little data on, on the impact of uh, duration. Well, the thought about the earlier introduction is that they say that if you introduce solid feed very early, uh, there is uh, an induction period where pigs would kind of learn, uh, you know, how to uh, eat solid feed. And uh, once they've learned, uh, let's say, five days induction, that would then uh, help them eat more creep feed. And in theory, if they eat more, that would help them get better weaning weights. But that's not what we saw. What we saw was that irregardless of the duration of creep feeding, 70% of the total creep feed consumption always occurs in the last seven days uh, by, before weaning. And so what we did see is that creep feed consumption is much more related to when pigs are ready to eat creep feed rather than when we start them on creep feed. So I think, we, which again is uh, not very difficult to understand. You know, as we all know, uh, the premise of providing creep feed is to give supplement, uh, supplementary sources of nutrients during the time when milk production uh, is thought to decrease, which is some, sometime mid-lactation. And uh, since pigs would need more nutrients, then that's where we put more, more uh, supplements. And uh, maybe uh, that, that drives uh, creep feed consumption. And so uh, when I uh, 
recommend cree feeding, I would always say that uh, cree, uh, cree feed uh, maybe three to seven days before weaning because that is basically where they would want uh, the, the feed. Uh, so, so that would lessen uh, the cost that is entailed in, in the practice. What else? We also evaluated the, the effect of uh, the physiological status of the sow because we thought that if lactating sows are consuming less feed, then they would be producing less milk. And that may stimulate the, the piglets to look for uh, the supplementary sources of nutrients. Uh, and that is what we, we experience here in, you know, in, in tropical countries like the Philippines. You know, we don't get very high lactation uh, feed intake. And so um, it's practically a must for us to, to supplement uh, litters. Um, so we compared sows that were fed ad-lib and fed restricted. And as we would already expect, uh, there are some differences in uh, litter performance between uh, pigs or between litters uh, on sows fed restricted versus uh, fed ad lib. But providing uh, cree feed to both litters, uh, even on the restricted sows, did not stimulate uh, uh, more uh, stimulate the litters to eat more cree feed. So it did not influence the proportion of eaters. Um, and cree feed did not uh, have any effect on, on, repro uh, on the performance of the sow because that's also one of the things that uh, uh, we would always uh, kind of think about when we use cree feed. We, some companies would say that uh, Cree feeding allows the sow, you know, you reduce the nutritional load on the sow. So that means they would have, you know, more nutrients to, to maintain uh, their, uh, to, to reduce lactation body weight loss. And, and clearly that is not the case because even if they eat a lot of cree feed, you would need a lot of uh, uh, nutrients <laughs> for the litter to consume to really have an impact on sow. Uh, performance. So, so that to me was also very uh, interesting. Wow! Yeah, that's a lot. you've done a lot, right? You've done several studies on that area, and it's it's amazing, right? Like you said, you've probably done half of the creep feeding studies around <laughs> the globe, right? And you had a lot of good points here, Romel, um, that I wanted to dive in. One is the um, last one you comment here that you know the sow didn't change there. I mean, didn't you know, uh, reducing the feed intake uh, didn't, um, or providing creep feeding didn't change the, the, the return to estrus or whatever other status in the sow. And it's probably because the sow prioritized that pig so much. And same thing, what we've seen late gestation is very similar. The sow prioritized that fetus is uh, very much and it. It's interesting to see. The other one that you comment was that I wanted to emphasize is you mentioned, you know, um, that if you do improve the the winning weight or or the weight at the end of the nursery, it doesn't mean that's gonna move that number is gonna be multiplied by two or whatever at the end that's of right. the life, right? Um, 
to be honest, it's not most simple. No, it's not right? like a, uh, it's not like a rule of thumb. You know, it's it's quite common that you would hear that that you know, like for every kilogram difference in nursery exit weights or from weaning weights, you would have x and x much of uh, difference in uh, market weights. Right. But it's clearly not as simple as that. <laughs> exactly, and and you know why, where where I think people sometimes miss the boat is that that is true for a population meaning yes if you have just a population of pigs the heaviest pigs they're growing they're growing faster and you do the math it's going to turn out that the heaviest pigs on average do multiply the body weight whatever but now when you do these manipulations uh, nutrition or management then it's almost like okay you probably if you have one kg difference at the end of the nursery you probably better off either assume that that body weight is going to maintain the same or like you said very well may, very often it might disappear so you yes. need to be uh, need to be very careful and and I'm I'm glad you brought that up because it's a common situation we see around yeah and i think that 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 actually gives uh, some false uh, um, actually it's a false narrative in a way because what they would what would producers do is you know you'll, they'll try to you know improve nursery performance and then assume that uh, whatever difference in performance they get in the nursery that would benefit them all throughout and leave out you know the growing finishing phase you know but uh, like i said that gives uh, some uh, that i think is a false narrative because we still have to take care of the growing finishing phase. Uh, it doesn't mean that the investment phase would would carry over until the end. And uh, we still have to do a good job in feeding our growing finishing pigs if we really want to maximize the responses that we get uh, in the nursery. Right. It does seem that if you stop that stimulus, one thing if was, let's say, if we were continuing, you mentioned the milk replacer, from Dr. Douglas, we had her on the show here. And also, I mean, Dr. Mike Ellis and Brad Walter, early 2000s did, did a lot of the, the work that, that um, you know, didn't show much of a carryover, but it, it, it does seem, well, if you do continue the stimulus all the way to market, right? But you're not gonna, you're not gonna be doing milk replacer all the way to the market. <laughs> oh, that is right. You know? Yeah, so that, yeah, we, we did some work on that. Uh... My very first uh, study when I arrived at Kansas State was a study combining uh, liquid and dry feed in the nursery. And uh, what we did observing that study was, th was that, yes, providing the liquid feed uh, kind of really stimulated uh, dry matter intake in the pigs. They really consumed the, the liquid feed. And the longer you provide it, uh, the better is the effect on, on weights. But the problem was, once we start transitioning from the liquid diet to the dry diet, it, it kind of uh, had a second uh, post-weaning lag, like a post-post-weaning lag. And uh, all the benefits that we were able to get uh, at the end of the nursery uh, were lost uh, because of the reduction in performance immediately after we transitioned from the liquid to the dry feed. And so... So, 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 so those kind of things, you know, those are, you know, some of the things that you, you find interesting. Very good. So, ju so just to wrap up the, the, the creep feeding side of things, what are a few other of the common mistakes, right? One is that it comes to mind, you already 
touch was, uh, hey, most of that feed intake is later or mm-hmm. when you're doing uh, crib feeding. But then the other one is uh, probably sometimes fo- folks giving too much feed per day, crib feed per day. Is, it, is that a common mistake or what other mistakes do you see? Well, I, I think the, the, main, the main, for me personally, the, the biggest change for me is how I view the practice. So before, the way I see it, uh, I see creep feeding was really to improve weaning weights. But now I see it as a way to improve post-weaning performance by changing feeding behavior. Um, and, um, and so providing creep feed, you know, it's not, really, uh, it's not really based on the amount of creep feed that we provide, but essentially how we can stimulate the pigs to eat more. Uh, uh, how, to stimulate more pigs to eat creep feed, not necessarily more creep feed. Uh, because what we've learned also in our studies that as long as the pigs ate creep feed, regardless of the amount, as long as they became eaters, the responses are the same post-weaning, regardless if they ate five grams or 50 grams per day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so the practice would then be uh, when we manage it in the firing house is really to look at how we can make all the pigs in the litter eat creep feed. And that actually was the joke that we had uh, then. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say, I will not graduate until I get 100% eaters. <laughs> I got very close. I got very close. I think the highest I got was like 90%. Uh, there were litters that were a hundred percent, but uh, never got to you know all a hundred percent. They yeah. let me graduate, so that's okay. <laughs> they are tough on you. Wow, very very interesting. Um, I guess um, I guess the other point on crib feeding is with the whole thing about you know different areas of the globe transitioning away from zinc oxide and and of course antibiotics. It's probably one that maybe. Personally, when people ask me, I'm like, should I creep feed? I'm like, it's a, it depends, right? Like you said, on labor cost and, I, you know, but, but now with all these transitions there in, in, in the dynamics, maybe, maybe it's going to become even more important. Is that a fair statement? Yes, I think so. I think with, with, with all the uh, developments now on, uh, you know, re- a removal of zinc oxide in the diet and then... Uh, that will add on to the pressure of removing uh, antibiotics in the diet, you know. Uh, so, so there's clearly a lot more challenges uh, that, uh, that we will have, uh, particularly in the nursery. And I think, yes, I think that would stimulate us to really think about pre-weaning feeding strategies so that we can help the pigs out uh, in the nursery. So I think uh, in time we will see more more and more interest and work uh, on this area because of those challenges that we will have. Uh, and in fact, in some parts of the world, they already have uh, uh, the challenges that we have on those uh, uh, developments in, in, in feed. Do you recall, if I'm, my memory serves me, there was a few of your studies that there was actually improved in removal rate. Uh, is that a fair? Is that right? Do you remember if you improved? Uh, no, but uh, what we actually did was to see on. Uh, that's right. Yeah, we looked at the uh, fall uh, fallback pigs mm-hmm. uh, in the nur- uh, in the nursery, and what we did see is we had uh, less fallouts 
in pigs that were cre-fed. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that that high had high proportion of eaters, you know, compared to 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 litters uh, uh, that have uh, uh, that were not provided cree feed, and I think that is that goes back to the effect of cree feeding on the small pigs in the litter, and that's actually that's actually how I view it. You know, cree feed is really a way to really help out the small pigs in the litter. Uh, it gives them a fighting chance in the nursery. And uh, and so and we were able to demonstrate that when we uh, grouped all the pigs, uh, all the eaters, and then all the non-eaters uh, in the nursery, and that's what we saw. We saw uh, a lower uh, percentage of fallouts in the eater uh, pens compared to uh, the non-eater pens. So I think that's that's quite good. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, and for me, as 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 we digest this information in my head, is like it's interesting that help on the on the fallout pigs, but also the getting them to eat quicker, like you said. That's right. Um, and I personally, I don't get as excited on the growth. You know, oh, they grow a little faster in the first week. Like again, back to the oh, it's going to multiply later. But if you save a few pigs and they eat a little bit, that alone is is pretty good. That's right. Super cool. Now let's transition a little bit on the create. I call crazy ingredients, right? So just share with us some of the crazy ingredients that that you guys have on the Philippines. Well, um, well, crazy ingredients. I think they are they're they're quite a lot. You know, we <laughs> um, well one of the challenges that we have um, uh, here in the in this region is uh, we have a wide variety of feed ingredients. And so there are a lot more uh, uh, byproducts that are available. Uh, there are byproducts coming from the food industry uh, that we have to uh, contend with. And so uh, that makes it a little bit more challenging in, uh, in, in developing our feeding programs. And so uh, one of the areas that I really work on, work on uh, here in the Philippines is really to reevaluate many of the ingredients that are available in the region and, uh, and, and uh, develop ways of how we can uh, have a more dynamic approach in the esti- uh, estimation of the nutritional value of these ingredients. And so uh, what I would like to change is actually uh, uh, moving away from the static approach of estimating nutritional value of feed ingredients to a more dynamic approach of estimating nutritional value. And that, I think, is one way for us to mitigate the effects of variability in many of the crazy ingredients that we have to, to work with. And so I, we do a lot of work on measuring um, uh, energy values uh, and amino acid digestibility values, uh, and uh, and uh, that's where mathematics comes in. I know you like statistics, and uh, uh, I have the same passion for uh, for modeling, and uh, and so I do a lot of uh, modeling work for uh, particularly on on feed ingredients. So uh, uh, the end objective is that we would have. Uh, a system where we can use these models to to more effectively uh, mitigate uh, variation in our raw material. So that would take away the guesswork 
and uh, and uh, hopefully be able to produce more accurate feed formulation so that our performance levels will also be more predictable. Very interesting. So so let's look at a few of them. So copra meal. Yes. Right. <laughs> so so if you can ex- explain to folks what copra meal is. Yes. Well, well, copra meal is a coconut uh, meal, and it is the byproduct of uh, co- uh, coconut oil productions. Very similar to, I guess, soybean meal in in a way, because soybean meal is also a byproduct of soybean oil production. Coconut oil is the primary uh, fat source here. Uh, well, I would guess uh, in the ASEAN region, that would be the Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia. Uh, so that's why we have a lot of uh, uh, coconut oil and uh, uh, because we have a lot of palm trees, <laughs> coconut trees. Yeah. Uh, well, the challenge with co- copra meal is it's very high in, um, in uh, fiber. Uh, and the type of fiber that's present in, in copra meal is very different from other byproducts because it's very high in, uh, um, in non-starch polysaccharides, particularly uh, mannans and galactomannans, which, is, uh, which are soluble fibers and much more difficult to deal with. Uh, the same is true for palm kernel products. So also in this region, we have a lot of palm oil uh, byproducts. Um, so like palm, palm, uh, palm kernel meal. And its composition is very similar with, uh, with copper meal. It's also high in, uh, very high in fiber. And uh, I think one of the problems also with these ingredients is uh, it has a very poor amino acid balance. It does contain protein about uh, palm kernel product is about, about 15% and the copra meal is about 21%. Uh, protein. So in a way, that's, uh, that may be, uh, those can be used as a, an alternative uh, for soybean meal, but the quality of uh, the protein quality of these bioproducts are very poor. Uh, it's very high in arginine. Uh, so the arginine lysine ratios of these ingredients, uh, in a way, affects uh, uh, lysine utilization. And because they are heat processed, that further reduces uh, uh, lysine digestibility in these ingredients. That's why it's, these are very difficult ingredients to use um, uh, in the feed. Uh, but with a little help, uh, like I said, as long as we have a way to mitigate the, the negative effects of its composition, then we can improve the utilization of these ingredients. So that can be through properly assessing the energy value as well as the amino acid digestibility values that we could get uh, from these ingredients. And we've done a lot of work that we were able to accomplish that. So copra meal is, uh, I think, uh, before, for example, uh, we don't normally use this ingredient in nursery diets, uh, but with uh, better uh, matrix values and nutrient loading values, uh, we can actually use it as much as 15% in the diet without negatively affecting performance. Wow. And I think that's another thing. You know, what we've seen in the work that we've done is I think we are underestimating the value of piglets, particularly in how they utilize fiber. Uh, because we've seen it with copra meal. We've seen it with, the, we've seen it with palm kernel products. We've seen it with wheat middlings. We've seen it in rice bran. 
we often stay away from these ingredients for in putting together our nursery diets. But as long as we, we do a very good job of assessing the value of these ingredients, we can successfully include them in, in these diets without negatively affecting performance. So that could be a source of, uh, uh, that could be a way to reduce uh, our cost. Wow. I mean, we have uh, Dr. Heinstein on this side of the globe and we have Dr. <laughs> Romel on the other half and you both conquer the world, man, on, on the ingredients, right? Uh, yeah. Love it. I, love think, it. Uh, I think the Philippines is his second home. <laughs> yeah, exactly right, right? He's there very often. Yeah. yeah. Super cool. Um, let's see here. So you've done some work on paling replacements, right? And antibiotic replacements. Uh, let's start with paling. What, uh, did you find anything so far? We are all waiting here. What, what yeah. did you find? You know, we, we always say uh, uh, there are standard feed additives that we use in the diets. And the reason why we say standard is because day in, day out, day in and day out, we know what we will get when we use them in the diet. That includes, um, you know, antibiotics. That includes zinc oxide. That includes phytase, and that includes ractopamine. You know, we know that if we use them at the, a particular level, we know the response that we will get, and that's that's why they they become they become standards in our in our diets. But because of uh, demands in the market uh, for removing many of these ingredients, particularly antibiotics, zinc oxide, and paline, for example, uh, we have to find alternatives. And so we did some work on that. We did look at uh, uh, some alternative materials that were proposed there. We did some work on some phytogenic feed additives that uh, combined plant extracts that have uh, that, that there is some data showing some effects on leanness or growth rates. Uh, I think we've done probably two or three of those studies and uh, uh, we did not see any uh, of them uh, being at the same, same level as uh, ractopamine. I think that is the challenge. Uh, uh, the closest that we did get is the replacement of uh, 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 the use of generics versus uh, standard uh, ractopamine, which is basically paline in the U.S. And we were able to see that there are some generics that are as effective as, uh, as paline. Uh, but then again, at the end of the day, we need to remove ractopamine because uh, I don't know if it's a challenge in other parts of the world, but that allows the use of ractopamine. But uh, here in our region... Uh, ractopamine is legal, but salbutamol is illegal. The problem is there are unscrupulous uh, suppliers that would try to bring in uh, ractopamine when in reality it is a banned substance. And uh, our government does not have the ability to really test all these products to, to ensure that they are ractopamine. And so there is, uh, there is some, some quite a high level of use of these uh, products. So I think there is really a push that altogether, all beta agonists, uh, particularly ractopamine, uh, uh, would be banned uh, uh, in the region, uh, well, well, for the Philippines for that matter. 
And so that's why we are really looking into uh, potential alternatives. And it's very difficult to find something that is as good as ractopamine. And that, that actually is uh, a tool that is taken away from us and it becomes uh, more challenging for us. Yes, I mean, yeah, what well, I think the main reason is trade barriers, right? Is that a fair statement that the biggest reason for, I think, what, China, Russia is because they place trade barriers in other countries on the right That's right. Now. That's right. Yeah, China in particular, especially now that they are trying to uh, import more pork uh, into China. Uh, and so that clearly becomes a, a trade barrier. Uh, so... So really, there is uh, there is really a need to find something that is just as good as ractopamine. Right, it's a tough one. I mean, we always <laughs> like it you said, a tough one. <laughs> we when we find a silver bullet, uh, you get, it gets away from us. But uh, mm -hmm. cool. Uh, how about uh, when you look at in antibiotic replacements? What uh, what have you looked? there yep so so we've had a chance to work on a lot of things um but uh, there are two two um uh two things that we did see uh that uh, may be very good in replacing antibiotics uh we've done some work with uh, some uh algal polysaccharides some some seaweed products uh, that contains uh Uh, some bioactive components that are known to have antibacterial and, and even antiviral properties. And uh, we were able to see that uh, at a certain level of inclusion, we can effectively replace uh, antibiotics, uh, particularly uh, uh, triamoline and CTC when added into nursery diets. That was exciting for us because... Uh, Uh, that actually started our work on on seaweeds. You know, the Philippines is a country surrounded by oceans. You know, and uh, uh, we have about 300 uh, different species of seaweeds, uh, but only five of them are uh, used economically. And uh, and uh, if we would follow work that's being done in human nutrition, it's 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 really uh, interesting, and uh, it kind of. Uh, puts us into that direction to see if maybe we can evaluate seaweeds uh, as a source of this bioactive components. And I think there is now enough data to show that there might be some, some prospects there. Um, the, other that, uh, the other thing that uh, we've seen, uh, another uh, ingredient are some uh, alternative zinc sources. Uh, we were able to successfully replace antibiotics with a Uh, a potentiated, uh, um, uh, like a potentiated zinc oxide. So it's actually two pronged uh, because uh, we are also looking at alternatives to zinc oxide. And we did see that uh, there are uh, some alternative zinc sources that can partially uh, replace uh, or fully replace zinc oxide uh, in uh, antibiotic promoters. Now we are also currently working on some um, some other types of feed additives. I think medium chain fatty acids is uh, something uh, to to really look into. Um, I think there is a lot of uh, possibilities there. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we are a big producer of coconut oil, 
And as we all know, coconut oil is a very rich source of uh, lauric acid. And, um, and so that's what we are doing now. We are working on uh, this uh, fatty acid, so lauric acid, uh, and evaluating them as, uh, as also an alternative for, for antibiotics. I think at the end of the day, I think there will not be a single solution. I think it will be a combination of things that we need to add into the diet or probably even in the design of the diet that can help us uh, effectively replace uh, antibiotics and zinc oxide in the diet. Again, just like our discussion on ractopamine, those two ingredients are very difficult to replace. And that's why we really have to do a lot of work to find uh, effective uh, alternatives. And in my opinion, it will be a combination of things, maybe some feed additives that we have to add in the diet, plus maybe some, some changes in the design of the diet to allow us to get uh, to the same level of performance. Very good. How about mycotoxin? You've been doing some work on mycotoxin. What, what did you find there? When I was at Kansas State at that time, you know, there was really no interest about mycotoxins. And uh, I remember there was even a time that uh, we had a meeting that I had to kind of talk about mycotoxins a little bit more because uh, in the U.S. it was alien at, at that time. But now, obviously, it is, uh, it is something that uh, uh, people are looking into. But here in our region, you know, as, as we've been talking about feed ingredients, the crazy ingredients, the, the, another problem with those crazy ingredients is they are usually contaminated with mycotoxins. So mm -hmm. copra in particular is, uh, is always suspect for aflatoxin contamination. And so that is something we deal with every day. Uh, and so majority of our producers uh, would control mycotoxins by using a, a more preventive approach. And that will be testing uh, ingredients uh, and they, they, they would uh, test for all the major mycotoxins like aflatoxin, xeralinone, uh, maybe tetotoxin for poultry. But you know, those are just three mycotoxins and there are 300, there are quite a big number of mycotoxins that are, that are present that we can never test for. And so uh, the other approach that others would do is uh, the addition of uh, what we call uh, mycotoxin binders. You know? And that's what I call the shotgun approach. Uh, and the reason why it's called shotgun is... Uh, you know, I would test maybe just to ensure that I get good, good ingredients. But since I cannot test for everything, then maybe an insurance policy in my diets will help. And so in theory, uh, what we hope for is that those feed supplements would bind the mycotoxin and would help prevent mycotoxicosis. But the reality, again, goes back to, to science. I think... Uh, when you go back and evaluate if there is evidence of effects, then that may be suspect. Actually, I, we did some work some time ago where we evaluated the research that's been done on different approaches in uh, mycotoxin decontamination. And that was the reality that struck us. Again, there is very limited data 
on specific types of uh, mycotoxins, uh, mycotoxin uh, products. I think what is clear is that aflatoxin is much easier to control. Uh, there are quite a number of uh, uh, products like, um, you know, as simple as uh, zeolite, uh, um, some bentonites, the clays, you know. Uh, there is quite a lot of data that would show that, yes, it can effectively bind aflatoxin, uh, though there, are, there may be also some concerns on the binding of other nutrients, you know, not just mycotoxin, but the binding of other nutrients. Um, but the question is, how about the other mycotoxins? And that is the bigger question, because often what we would experience uh, in the field would be uh, mycotox uh, mycotoxicosis related to xeralinone, particularly in breeders. Uh, you will see vulva vaginitis and uh, you would already suspect uh, xeralinone. And even if the diets uh, are contaminated with xeralinone, um, the, the reality is there is not a lot of data on effective uh, products that can really control uh, or bind uh, uh, xeralinone. And, and, I, and I guess that would be true also for other mycotoxins. So when we control mycotoxin, we have to look at it more holistically. And I think that is the challenge. I think the best approach is to, do, uh, to prevent uh, the use of uh, uh, contaminated ingredients. That's why we invest on testing. Uh, but the use of uh, insurance policies like uh, mycotoxin binders, I think we really have to do a better job of really looking at evidence of effects. We have to be more critical about it because we may just be adding costs in our diets without having any, any benefit from it. So clearly that is an area where we need more, uh, more research. Right, do you have a vomitoxin there? Oh yes, uh, once in a while you will see it, uh, particularly uh, uh, there, I've, I've had uh, experience of uh, a unit that had uh, 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 problems related to uh, DON, yeah, vomitoxin. So, mm -hmm. so yes, uh, so I think, I think this is with the same family as uh, uh, xeralinone. These are all field mycotoxins. Uh, so, the, so like with tetotoxin, ocrotoxin, they are all together. So, so if you see challenges related to T2 or, or fumonisins, then or xeralinone, then you, you need to start suspecting these um, other mycotoxins from the same family. Very interesting. We, I don't know if uh, sodium metabisulfate would be um, legal or used in Philippines, but that's been one that's been fairly helpful on the vomitoxin uh, and also in performance in general. Just need to be mm -hmm. a little careful with some of the timing uh, deficiencies that it creates. Mm -hmm. But is that is that something used there in Philippines? No, no, uh, it's not common here. Uh, in fact, I I don't know if anybody is currently using uh, metabisulfate as uh, as a toxin binder. Majority of what is being used uh, are are HCAS products. Um, so. These are aluminosilicates, mm -hmm. uh, and again, that is because it's, it's, it is cheaper. That's the other thing, and there's something I also would like to point out. 
you know, there, there are these products uh, and like HCAS, there are some data that it is effective. But when you compare the commercial use versus what is in the data in terms of the level of inclusion, there's a big disparity. Now, for example, data would show that it is effective at uh, a rate of five to seven kilos per ton. But uh, what you would see in the market when it is used in the feed would be one kilo per ton. So, and they would say it is the prevent it is at a preventive dose. So, and then when you have the mycotoxin, that's when you use five kilos per ton. So, so again, those are things that I think we need to think a little bit more deeply because, uh, you know, at, at this day and age, you know, every cent counts. And if we are putting in money on something that we will not get anything back, I think that is. Uh, that will uh, that will be bad for us in the long run. So, so those are, I think, one of the challenges. There are disparities between what is being applied commercially versus what the science shows us. You know? Right. No, I mean, can you comment um, on the topic of yeah, just being uh, having a critical thinking, or but also. Um, you know, when evaluating something on your pig production system, what are things to be aware to have a scientifically valid approach? Well, I think that is one of the things that we are trying to do a, a better job on, and that is educating our uh, pig producers on the value of scientific research. You know, I, I think it's already a good start that many of our producers uh, are inclined to, to look at evidence. The only challenge is that uh, they would do their own trials themselves. And it would be just as simple as feeding one building this diet and then feeding the other building uh, another diet and, uh, and then comparing the results. And uh, what we try to uh, do is to help educate them that, uh, you know, uh, looking at the numbers, you know, that is not necessarily the best way, you know, you that there are basic principles that we have to follow to ensure that when we do our trials, our feeding trials on the farm, it is more scientifically sound because they are based on uh, basic statistical uh, principles. And so uh, one of the initiatives that we do is we kind of teach uh, not just our uh, animal nutrition practitioners, but even producers on how to conduct uh, basic feeding trials. Uh, uh, and then to look into how to, uh, uh, how to interpret data. And we te even teach them uh, what the p-value means, you know, what does it mean and what, what is, why is it important that we get replication in an experiment if you are doing a trial? It's not feeding a thousand pigs versus a thousand pigs and, uh, you know, you just give them uh, each, you know, their diets and uh, mm -hmm. that's it, you know, just look at the performance, you know. And so essentially it's, it's to help them to have a better way of effectively uh, making their decisions, you know, so, so to use data that is scientifically sound to make effective decisions in their operations. Uh, so, so that is an initiative that uh, we, we try to do uh, to help uh, the industry. Amazing. 
This is a very nice. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Romel, let's jump into our three questions here. Uh, <laughs> before that, you have anything else you want to say before we jump on the three questions that, that I ask every guest? No, I think I'm good. It is time to our famous three. NutriQuest delivers targeted breakthrough solutions to animal producers via nutritional and non-nutritional products, services, and technologies. At NutriQuest, we believe in ingenuity inspired by servitude and that our success comes from helping producers realize improved profitability through optimized technologies and efficient operation. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. So the first one is, what's your favorite pig-related uh, book? Okay, my favorite pig-related book actually goes back when I was a very young animal nutritionist. Uh, I picked up this uh, uh, swine nutrition uh, guide uh, that was uh, this book that was made by John Patience when he was still at Prairie Swine Center. Mm -hmm. The reason why I like that book is because it was simply put. The way it was uh, written, it was very simple to understand, very interesting. Even the figures were like cartoons and uh, mm -hmm. it kind of really pulled me into uh, swine nutrition. And so there are a lot of, of, obviously there are a lot of very good books and I would, I could simply say the NRC book, you know, but, uh, right. but, uh, but if I would really go back, that was the book that kind of, uh, changed me in a way, because I, I literally, uh, changed from poultry nutrition to swine nutrition because of that book. So that to me was, that to me is my favorite uh, swine uh, nutrition book. Super cool. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen the PDFs, I think, of those at the time. Uh, mm -hmm. Great, great book. How about a book uh, outside of our good culture? Um, I guess I have no nothing in particular, but uh, I do read some, some management books, particularly in, on teamwork, because uh, being an administrator, uh, you know, you have to work with teams uh, and uh, how to motivate your people. And so I do get a chance to read a variety of uh, management books that focuses on uh, uh, on teams and uh, working more effectively. <laughs> so so that, I guess, is uh, uh, so nothing in particular, not a particular book. Yeah. Cool, cool. And then to wrap up, what uh, do you think sets apart uh, successful swine professionals from those that are not? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. And that's actually a lesson that I always teach my students. And I always say that the best nutritionists that I've seen in my life are nutritionists that I don't see in the office. I see them in the farm. I see them in the mill, you know, and, uh, and the reason why they are very good is because they don't just formulate diets and that's it. You know, they step back and that's it. Thinking that everything is perfect. <laughs> uh, so the good ones are the ones that I see evaluating, you know, looking into how the diets that they prepared performed and, uh, and then re-evaluating and recalculating and uh, continuously improving. And so that's the lesson I always give to my own students that 
the best way for you to become a good nutritionist is to really be in touch, to really go to the farm, really go to the feed meal, see how the pigs are responding, because that will really help you in becoming a better animal nutritionist. Super cool. I mean, uh, diet formulation is what, 5 or 10% of a nutritionist uh, role, but the rest is making sure it's being implemented correctly. That's right. <laughs> right. Awesome. Dr. Romero, it's been a joy having you today. Uh, great to have someone from the Philippines. Great country, great people. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Marsha. And I do hope to see you again uh, sometime soon when all of this uh, issues with the pandemic is gone. Right. Are you planning to come to the Midwest meetings at all? Well, I was supposed to go to uh, the national meetings uh, last June, but uh, cool, I think man. that was in Wisconsin. But, uh, uh, well, pandemic <laughs> happened and uh, I guess... That is just postponed. I am looking forward to the next opportunity to go to the Midwest meetings. I don't know if the Midwest meetings this year would uh, would be face to face or virtual, uh, but uh, yeah, I will yeah. try to find a way. <laughs> right. I think it's about like nine hundred people face face, and the rest is virtual. So yeah, It'll be an interesting mm -hmm. one. All right, my friend. Appreciate it. We'll be in touch. Yes. Thank you, Marshall. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact by bringing from hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of swine nutrition on this seven-week-long elite online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding. It's conducted by myself, Dr. Marcio Gonçalves, and my world-class invited speakers. Additionally, you enjoy an exclusive community to exchange ideas. Go now to www.eliteswinenutritionist.com.